Welcome to Industry Insights, a podcast for, by and about the film industry from the Berlinale's European film market, produced in cooperation with Goethe Institute and co-funded by Creative Europe Media. My name is Johanna Koljonen. I'm a media analyst, strategic consultant and experience designer based in Sweden. And I'm sharing hosting duties on this podcast with the excellent Nadia Denton, whom you heard last time. Today's show consists of two separate interviews. I'll be meeting experts working in the creative industries to hear their thoughts on using tech in support of inclusivity, diversity, decolonization and democratization. These conversations are exciting and thought-provoking, so let's get straight to it. We're starting today with a disruptor at the heart of the traditional film industry. Decentralized Pictures, a foundation with close ties to the Coppola family's American Zoetrope company, is just weeks from launching the full version of its first app. The Decentralized Pictures financing platform is an app and website for community-based pitching. Anyone with a passionate interest in film can join, and especially unestablished filmmakers are expected to upload project presentations that can be rated and feedbacked on by the whole diverse community in all kinds of interesting and useful ways. This becomes especially important in the context of the awards from the Decentralized Pictures Fund, where winners can earn financing for their project. And it truly is the community that makes the selection, with the organization's board stepping in to judge only the shortlist and only for now to make double sure the technology is doing what's expected. Today we're talking to Michael Musante, who is co-founder of the Decentralized Pictures Foundation, as well as VP of Production and Acquisitions at American Zoetrope. And we'll also meet emerging filmmaker Tiffany Lin, whose short film Poachers won the beta test round of the DCP funding late last year. Mike and Tiffany, welcome to the show. Hello. Good to be here. Hello. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, this is an exciting time uh, for this project. And I thought we'll start today with letting uh, you, Mike, talk us through some of the structure of DCP and then get back to you, Tiffany, to talk together about how a platform like this can help the filmmakers. So uh, I felt like I, I tried to run through this pretty complex setup, Michael. I, what yep. we didn't talk about at the top uh, is the fact that this platform is also built on top of a blockchain. So right. can we start with that? Why, why do you do that? Uh, why is that great? And why have you made that choice? Thank you. Very good question. So the reason that we use blockchain technology is, is that it allows us certain efficiencies uh, that have never been available before and also provides uh, transparency and security uh, in the information and the opinion data that we, we uh, gather from our community. So let me explain what I mean by that. So what we're doing here, as you explained earlier, is you, we are offering financing. Filmmakers submit their projects to vie for that financing but it's the community that selects. The community weighs in, gives their opinions, votes on projects based on certain scores that will be competition specific for the particular type of film. And they vote on certain scores and all of that data is used to curate and select the winner. But in order to make this valid, we need a lot of opinions. We need massive amounts of opinions from all over the world so that we can we can separate it by demographics and, and analyze it and look at it. it th these decisions about uh, the winners they aren't as useful if it's a very small group. So we need a large group. So, and, and how do we get that large group to do that voting? We incentivize it. The submitter pays a submission fee in our film credits, and we can talk about that more uh, later, but they pay the submission fee and it gets put into a smart contract that then pays out the other members of the community for reviewing. But paying out a lot of people 
And, and the, the amount that a reviewer will earn for one particular review will admittedly be, be relatively small, but if they review a lot, it, it can grow very quickly. But that one payout for that one review is a relatively small amount. So how do you pay lots of people these payouts in a very efficient way? If we were using a central database uh, and paying people out with you know, in, in fiat currency, the, the, the stamp on the envelope would be more expensive than the payout. But we can, but with blockchain, what blockchain allows you to do is to efficiently and dynamically and quickly pay out all of these people in, you know, in, without, and it's, it's, all, it's all recorded on the blockchain, so it's all secure, it's a distributed ledger, so it, it's not hackable or it's, it's immutable data, anyone can query it, so it's all transparent. So those are the reasons why we use blockchain. It gives us this efficiency and transparency and security and immutability that wasn't available before. And so just ma it, that made you doing this sort of voting process impracticable. But now we can do it with blockchain. That, that, that's really just that's one thing that, that the blockchain affords us. Yeah. And of course, it makes it a little bit unhackable as well. So it's it's much more, I mean, I, and that's like, I, we probably shouldn't say that because there's always a way to mess with technology, but at least if somebody dies, does or attempts that, then it's possible to figure out who, d who did it and how. Uh, so it's also a safer system in this way. That's, that's exactly right. Everything gets recorded and every vote, every submission, every uh, payout is hashed and put on the blockchain. And a change, it, altering that is virtually impossible. I'm, I'm not the tech wizard, so we could we could get our my co-founder, Leo Machinen, to explain that, but you'd have to go around to every ledger and change it on every every ledger all over the world, and it's virtually impossible. Yeah, so add okay. security. Okay, so this, this part feels pretty clear, and now we're, I'm just going to, let's see if we can figure out the currency stuff. So, so first I should probably clarify, you said if we were pay people in fiat currency, which is like, I mean, we could conceptualize that as ordinary money. So fiat currency would be exactly. just ordinary money if we'd pay people in ordinary money. But if I'm a filmmaker, I'm going to need some ordinary money to come out of this system. So at some point. So let's talk about the money flows. First, you said sure. that, it, that the filmmakers will pay to submit a project. Um, what kind of sums are we talking about here? So we, right now we're pegging it to if it's a $100,000 award, it'll be a $100 submission fee. We will tweak that as the community uh, responds. We don't want to make it too difficult to submit, but we also, the, this revenue is what helps to f fund the film fund, so it's necessary for our 501c3 purpose. But also, it's important to say that that $100 uh, for a $100,000 award, that example I gave, uh, the users would pay $100 to buy film credits to use to submit. It's the film credits, our, our cryptographic token, that's used for the submission fee. But users don't have to buy those film credits. They can also review and earn them and earn a sufficient balance to then submit. So no one ever needs to pay any money out of their pocket to, to participate and submit a project. They could just review and earn. And that's important to us because that makes it more inclusive. And in a way also, I suppose, that, that doing this kind of like earning through, time, through spending time in the community also makes me understand better what kinds of pitches work and what kinds of interactions are meaningful and what else I can get out of it. Not everybody's going to get this award, but you're going to get other things back from yep. the community, information and insight and feedback. Uh, and yep. that has value as well. And you, I guess spending time on the, in the community also, also makes me better at being a member of it in some, in some way. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. We're not just, it's not just a, a it, it, it is a way to, to curate and select talent, but it's not just that. We want this to be a vibrant community where the, the submitters, the filmmakers, and the reviewers 
are all interacting and engaging and giving feedback and communicating about the projects. Actually, for each project, every time a, a filmmaker submits their project, they, they have an option to create a chat feature for their specific project. So that allows the, the filmmaker and the users to talk about that project. So there's feedback, of course, in the reviews, in the written reviews and the voting. But also the filmmaker and the reviewers can have an exchange and talk about what's resonating and what's not. And uh, I mean, I would like to also point out that Decentralized Pictures is a 501c3 nonprofit in the United States. So there, there are no shareholders. There are no, you know, we're a non-stock corporation. So there are no individual shareholders or stakeholders. And as a, our 501c3 mission is to support independent filmmaking and filmmakers from underserved and underrepresented communities. So all of the revenue that we get from the sales of the tokens or the films that Decentralized Pictures invests in uh, or anywhere else, donations anywhere else is all uh, put into our fund to service our nonprofit mission. Cool. So, Tiffany, you participated in a beta test late last year when the platform was opened, as I understand it, to local film schools in L.A. So what was your journey uh, through DCP? Yeah, so I first heard about DCP through my school's industry relations office. Um, They had just announced their beta test and they said they were looking for projects that needed finishing funds. Um, And I had happened to just uh, enter post on a short film that I had been making earlier that year. Um, So I thought it was like a perfect kind of timing to try and submit this and also just see what this platform is all about. Um, And so we submitted our project materials. Um, I created like a little short video of myself pitching it. Um, And yeah, the community was able to look at the project and sort of like vote on it. Um, And a few months later, they announced that our film had won the award, which was super, super awesome. So it's been really great working with them. Could you tell us a little bit about this film, this film Poachers? Yeah, Poachers is a short film about these two teenage girls who come across a really unique business opportunity of illegally harvesting and selling succulents on the California coast. And as they kind of go on this journey, they really have to figure out where they stand when it comes to breaking the law, uh, their morals, and of course, their friendship. Yeah, it's. I. I mean, it's. It looks and sounds like an incredibly appealing project. So possibly you would have been successful in any pitching context. We don't know. Uh, but how do you? How do you feel? Or if I, if I if I'll say it, say it like this, what did you learn during this process uh, about your audience or from the audience uh, on the platform? Yeah, I think one of the really unique things about DCP is that people are actually able to leave written reviews. Um, of the project, kind of talking about things that they resonated with or things that they wished to see like in the materials. Um, And so it was really cool to see what parts of the project that people resonated with, because obviously like there's a lot of different themes within this project. Um, And so some people were talking about how they really enjoyed kind of seeing this friendship aspect um, and other people uh, we're really interested in like this coming of age. And one person was like, I really love plants. And so um, you kind of are able to gauge um, the reactions of like a potential audience for your film and kind of gear it towards them. Do you think it's changed how you thought about placing the film now that it's finished and, and moving forward with the work? Um, I think that it definitely has sort of informed um, our festival strategy and sort of just seeing like what communities might be interested in this film, whether that may be geared towards more like environmental causes and things like that. 
yeah, I mean, because it is like a very, it's a very specific topic. I think in that specificity, there's like a little bit of universality third, or sorry, um, because it's part of such a specific topic. I think there are a lot of universal themes that end up coming through. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, so I guess this is a question to to both of you, based on the experience uh, of this beta and, and based on all, on all the things that, that, that you guys at DCP want to do going forward. How, why is a community like this needed? I guess there are many answers, but just please spell it out for me. Well, I'll add my view on that. One of the problems we feel like we're addressing with decentralized pictures is that d- decisions about what to finance, what to support in the film industry be it in in Hollywood at the biggest level, at the highest level, or even at the lower levels, decisions are made by a relatively small group of people, a room, boardroom of executives or an independent financier, you know, just a very small select few. And that centralized decision making has an effect of keeping out, tending to keep out the things that are the most innovative, the most interesting, the the most novel, you know, and there's a reason for that because those decision makers are are trying to mitigate their risk. It's all about avoiding that, you know, trying to minimize the risk in in a film. Films are very risky ventures. And if you're investing your money in it, then you want to, that's that's why we see things that are like known IP, known intellectual property, Marvel movies, uh, Paddington, uh, Harry Potter, and you see known actors and known talent. So it just makes it a lot harder for that new stuff and new talent to break through. And by essentially outsourcing the decision-making to a community, then we we decentralize that decision-making process. We take take it out of the hands of just a few people who are making decisions based on their gut and based on this, this sort of risk avoidance. And it gives a chance for really great material to break through. And so that's why we want this community. We want people who love and are interested in film and are interested in the issues that some of our that our films address. You know, it's not just about entertainment and, and you know, it's also art, but it's also there are, are message films and impact films. So people who care about these issues and care about film and care about storytelling, we want them to come on board and, and contribute to this decision making process. Yeah. And I think kind of speaking to it from the like emerging filmmaker point of view, kind of like this independent filmmaker, I think the DCP platform sort of has like two main benefits. The first, of course, being, as Mike mentioned, being able to connect like these different sources of funding and like financiers to emerging filmmakers who might not necessarily have the connections to that sort of capital or anything. I think within the current indie film like financing landscape, DCP offers another really interesting source of funding. And especially because of how accessible it is, I think it'll be really appealing to filmmakers who come from more underserved communities or communities that aren't as adjacent to, you know, like the big systems of Hollywood and offering some more opportunities for these stories to be told. I think the community part is also really awesome because as for myself, as like a young filmmaker, I think a lot of our community tends to come from like different spaces, like going to like film school or going to different festivals. But I think um, that kind of like limits your circle to like people who have like access to that. And I think being able to open it up to like a wider uh, range of people, like people from all over the globe is really, really cool to me. And like, I definitely would love to kind of see how that like impacts like collaborations going forward and just decentralizing obviously this filmmaking community so it's not just limited to like one or two regions as it is right now. I mean I love how this app sort of 
it addresses this sort of core tension in in something that's been happening in film. I mean, in a way, like in every generation, there's always more more technologies that make filmmaking cheaper and more accessible. But then the flip side of that is that, that then there's even more people today, arguably everybody, literally everybody are in some ways sort of film storytellers. So it also means that the that finally the potential pool of people whose stories can be told and whose voices get can get heard it, it, it possibly literally includes everybody, which is the like wonderful situation. But it also means that there's even more talent and even more projects vying for that attention. And I think this is there's something interesting here about sort of short circuiting that problem by just saying it's not everybody has to go through the exact same hoops. Absolutely, there's a new path for a filmmaker, even if they don't have all of those connections, even if they're not adjacent to the industry, as as Tiffany said so eloquently, but also. You're really touching on another challenge that the film industry faces, be it in Hollywood or outside of Hollywood and everywhere, which is something that we refer to as the drinking from the fire hose problem. That means there are so many filmmakers out there who want to tell their stories. There's so many scripts floating around the industry that I experienced this as head of production at American Zoetrope. I simply can't read all of the projects that are submitted to me. And, and even studios who have coverage teams can't review everything that comes in. It's, it's just not possible. There's just, there's just too much out there. And, and DCP can really help with that by outsourcing that review to our community, our large you know, nationwide and worldwide community, and incentivizing them by paying them to review. We can get through all of those submissions and curate them and find the, the projects that are really resonating with audiences. Uh, so I, I think that's one benefit that the platform really offers. In fact, I mean, I realize this is this is actually fascinating. I've never stopped to think about how this works from the filmmaker's perspective. Tiffany, you're, I mean, you, you've just been to film school. Did they talk to you about navigating this landscape? Like, were you taught methods for, 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 for sort of be, being discovered or, or, is it sort of still this sort of historical idea of, well, keep doing good work. I'm sure somebody will find you. Yeah, it's like a really interesting dichotomy, I think, in in sort of like the way that we were taught in film school. Because on the one hand, um, like there's a saying that people, like professors would tell me, they'd be like, if you have a good script and you like throw it off the side of the 405, which is like one of the main freeways in LA, like someone <laughs> will find it and read it. Uh, but on the other hand, I think just looking at the reality of, how things are submitted to studios. It's like people will not read it unless um, someone who represents you sends them the script. And that's just like a legal thing, uh, which is like totally understandable. But at the same time, there are like so many writers and like creators out there who have really wonderful stories to tell, but don't necessarily have, again, like the connections to industry or have representation necessarily um, to get the scripts out there. So like any organizations and like platforms that people are able to leverage, whether that might be like the blacklist or DCP itself, where people who aren't necessarily represented in these like normal methods in the industry still have an opportunity to hopefully get their story out there um, and get it told. I'm realizing as you're saying this, that of course, all the agents, I mean, everybody's drinking from the fire hose. Nobody has time to review all of the submissions and so on. So this may become, uh, I realize, <laughs> that might be one of the things that might happen to a, to a filmmaker who, who succeeds very well without necessarily even winning an award. Uh, you might be 
uh, get exposure to to people who are out looking for that talent. Um, so that's something that could absolutely happen on this platform. Absolutely, uh, we, we're not. Decentralized Pictures is, is providing financing support to the winning filmmakers, but it's not just financing support that we're providing. We're also we've also worked over the last few years building up a network of industry partners who are willing to look at winners and finalists and consider taking them on. So, and in addition to that, Decentralized Pictures will help the filmmaker, if the filmmaker wants it, help them shepherd their film through the process, through production, through post, through uh, finding distribution. So there's a lot of support that we're providing in addition to financing support. And yes, being on the platform and, and having a constituency build up around your project and, and having it be popular is certainly something that can help the project. The, we have many agency and management company partners in, in the industry. Uh, one of our board members is at ICM, and they're very keen to see the talent that comes out of the platform and is discovered. So it, yes, absolutely, participating in, in the platform can, can definitely get a, a filmmaker some very beneficial exposure. I'm super excited for filmmakers like Tiffany to have this opportunity, but I'm almost a little bit even more excited for for people who are living in some part of the world that is very far from Hollywood or some part of their country that is very far from whatever the filmmaking center of, of that part of the world is, because that those distances don't matter uh, in this system at all. So that's exciting. Okay, we're what, a few weeks out from the launch. Uh, Michael, let's talk a little bit about these first uh, awards. What can you tell us today? Yes, uh, our first award will be in partnership with the Gotham uh, in New York. It will be an unscripted award, so a documentary film. It will be finishing funds. We haven't decided on the amount, but it'll be somewhere between thirty dollars and $100,000 uh, for finishing funds for a documentary feature or short. And then our second award, which we're very excited about as well, will be a a scripted competition for finishing funds, and it's being sponsored by Steven Soderbergh. It was uh, announced a couple of days ago. Uh, Steven Soderbergh has donated $300,000 to the Decentralized Pictures Foundation to uh, provide finishing funds for three or more filmmakers. So we're very excited about that. And then our, our third award will be in partnership with Kevin Smith. It will be a comedy short uh, for $50,000. Those will be submissions at the script level. And the winning project will get our financing. And Kevin's team will also provide producing support if the filmmaker wants it to help them execute their project. So those are our first uh, few awards. And we're, we're very excited uh, to share those with the world. That's really exciting. So Tiffany, what's, uh, what's next for Poachers and what's next for you? Yeah, so Poachers is currently going on its uh, festival run. Uh, We've just started, so we're just kind of waiting to hear back from festivals and stuff. But um, if anyone is interested in kind of following along on our journey, um, you can follow us on Instagram at PoachersFilm. Yeah. That's awesome. And do you have your next project lined up? Yeah, I'm currently like writing, developing. Um, I'm also in post on another short as well. Um, So I've just definitely been trying to stay busy and uh, keeping on making films. It sounds like you have more projects that might end up on DCP. Oh, I mean, I I would definitely love to submit more. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, oh, we, we have no. Then, then people can also hook up with you there. Yeah. yeah. Michael, we have no rule that past winners can't submit uh, a, a later project. So we welcome uh, Tiffany to, to resubmit, and we look forward to seeing seeing what she's got. 
That's very exciting. Uh, Michael, I did notice earlier that you have mentioned that this would be the first app from Decentralized Pictures. What's the long-term goal here? Are you creating a whole ecosystem? That That is our is our vision. So it's important to, to point out that Decentralized Pictures is the first application on the blockchain that we've built, which is we're calling the Talent Network. It is a fork of Tezos for those that are familiar with blockchain. And uh, Decentralized Pictures is the first application on that blockchain and using the film credit, uh, which is our cryptographic token, using the film credit uh, token economy. But we have a vision to, to create other applications and we invite other developers to create applications that live on our blockchain and also use uh, the token that are in the filmmaking as and art, arts and culture space. So we have ideas for applications that deal with casting, deal with finding locations, deal with uh, finding stock footage and and music. And I think the possibilities are limitless. And what we would ultimately like to create is something akin to a virtual studio where a filmmaker can go to the talent network and submit their project on DCP for financing, then they get the financing and then they have other production needs. They can submit it on other applications on that blockchain. And again, we are we have plans to, to build additional apps, but we also it's in it's open source software. So anyone can can build on it. It's it's out there in the in the world, in the wild, if you will. Uh, we don't control it. Uh, it's it, you know, so anyone could come on and build an application and we invite any visionary developers to 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 add to our community that can support filmmakers and artists. That's fantastic. So uh, let's see. Everybody who's listening uh, needs to find the Decentralized Pictures app, which will launch very soon. You can go to the website. Uh, obviously, we'll put everything in the show notes uh, to, to stay up to date on what's happening. And of course, also with these exciting awards. Follow Poachers Film on Instagram uh, for that. And, uh, and then, yeah, find your developer friends and, and solve the, the problems of your bit of the film industry. Uh, within this system. That sounds amazing. Yeah, no, I, I think one of the great things about the platform is that you don't necessarily need to be like an expert in blockchain to use it. Uh, I myself, like Mike, I'm not super like I, I, I can't really explain blockchain like super well. Like I have a basic understanding, but I think you can kind of engage in it as much as you want, whether um, like you really want to like get on the hood or you're just kind of using the platform more as like a filmmaker and just pitching projects. I think like there's definitely like a space in it for everyone where, um, yeah, it's like you can use it more to just like view stuff, you can use it to submit. Um, But I think there's definitely space for a lot of different kinds of people. That's actually a really excellent point. I would I'd love to add to that. We've designed it, the platform and the the application, the user interface, to be as user friendly as possible. All the blockchain lives in the background, and so if you go to the website, you don't really even know that there's blockchain anywhere in there. And we did that on purpose because we don't we don't we want everybody to be able to participate in it. You know, filmmakers are focused on films. They're not they're not blockchain people necessarily. So we intentionally made it as user-friendly as possible so that anyone can come on and participate. If you can create a Facebook account, you can create a DCP account and uh, need not have any any knowledge or expertise in blockchain to participate. Thank so. God. <laughs> Don't be afraid That's of great. the blockchain. 
<laughs> it won't I, hurt I am you. a little bit, a tiny bit afraid of the blockchain, but this this feels very friendly, so I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah, you're in good yeah. hands here. <laughs> That's great. That sounds amazing. Thank you so much, Michael Masante and Tiffany Ling, for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. I'm very excited now to speak to our next guest, who is, I think, joining us from Johannesburg. She's a social entrepreneur, digital strategist, app developer, marketer, and community leader who has worked with major corporations in entertainment and social media, as well as founding startup networks and tech-related communities. And I am hoping for us to learn from her today a bit about the idea of decolonizing tech. Mbali Ndlovu, welcome to the show. Hello, and thank you for having me. I'm so super excited about this conversation. I normally complain to my friends and the people in closed rooms, and now someone wants to listen, you know? <laughs> Wonderful. Yes, yes, feel free to complain as much as you want. So uh, you, you run the Johannesburg chapter of something called the Startup Grind. And as I understand it, this is a global network, and you've worked in different places. So my internal vision of the tech startup scene in South Africa is that it is in many ways very similar to what you would see in, in a place like San Francisco or in Berlin, uh, but maybe not in some other way. So is that correct? If we start there, like what are the similarities and the differences between the startup scenes? Absolutely. Um, the way that I view it is that there are two types of startup um, spaces, the ones with the big she uh, checks and balances, and um, they're working in corporate South Africa, your mainstream Santons and all of that. And then there's this really raw, really beautiful, um, sometimes forgotten or ignored um, startup entrepreneurship space, which is um, more in the township economy, which are independent self-starters who've had age-old ways of doing things and now with the kind of the merging of the two worlds with the tech they're getting on to tech and they are problem solving in really cool ways. Uh, you said township economy I'm realizing for the younger listeners we might have to explain what a township is so these were racially segregated areas uh, during apartheid uh, and they are still many of them as I understand uh, severely underdeveloped but there are also a lot of middle class uh, areas sort of happening in, in the townships. Uh, would this, is this about correct? Pretty much, yeah. So what's the township economy? You say like it's still separated sort of from the mainstream economy then? Yeah, well, so historically, black people, are just we were divided by race and set into our different areas. And as such, we had to really get creative about problem solving, about, you know, setting up resources, dispatching them or, or providing services, whatever it was. And... Um, As such, these township economies can be record, can be given labels by the more corporate side as maybe informal or infantile or juvenile or rough. I don't know how else to explain it. And but it's actually not the case at all. So, for example, there's um, uh, you guys have Uber Eats. We all have it. Um, and Uber Eats works in South Africa, but there are certain places where they just don't have drivers. They don't have this. They just can't get into that system. And already, as it is, these people have solve that problem themselves. They're running businesses on WhatsApp. There are electronic vehicles. Umama's making a Macbina and I can just WhatsApp and get that thing. And the, so you know what I mean? Like we're, we're, that's the township economy. We just get it done. There's no real concept of an obstacle. It's just, okay, cool. This is what we now need. This is what we're working with and what we're not. And, and how do we get there? I mean, I, obviously I don't want to glorify the, the reasons that those economies exist, but at the same time, I feel like that's the kind of actual, like that seem, feels like the more real startup mentality, that that's an entrepreneurialism that's, um, that's very hands-on, right? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. It's for us, by us. And, um, and I really, why I love being in the startup space and being kind of in between the two worlds and figuring out how to, whether do they need to merge or does the one need to support the other is because these things are, are moving and they're going. And also to ho- help these guys understand that technology is a really, really awesome um, tool um, that, yes, it could be perceived as a Western thing or, ah, it sounds like a rich people's thing, technology or white person's thing or whatever it is. Like, no, man, these things, you're using them anyway. So how do we leverage and get the most out of it so we can carry on growing? I think I read in your bio that you actually grew up in a township uh, so in Soweto. So if what was your idea as a child of technology? And if you'd be a child there today, how would that idea have changed? Technology in the hood. Yes. Yeah, so I grew up in Soweto, uh, the southwestern township, uh, one of the very one of the older and larger um, townships in um, South Africa. And my relationship with technology did not exist. Me at home. Um, where we go visit our other family members who are a little bit more in villages outside of Gauteng. Um, there could be a TV, you know, if people have cell phones, it's for WhatsApp or Instagram or Facebook. And it's a very limited understanding of the fact that we have a relationship with technology. So myself being a curious person, I don't know if I would have ended up in tech, but I definitely would have been exploring some kind of something. And um, yeah. So, but today a kid in Soweto would have access to much more technology? Today we'd have access to a lot more technology, um, whether or not we were able. So the thing is as well, right? This also applies to entrepreneurs or to creatives if you're going out there. So um, when you're starting out as an entrepreneur, for example, there are things that you don't know that you need to know and that you don't. So the same applies for our relationship with technology. I could be as someone who's selling whatever kind of business or I've got this really cool creative service. I'm a photographer, but all I know is that I should do a Facebook post and I can WhatsApp my friends and, and it should go through. But just that awareness of understanding like, yo, this thing is a tool. This thing is a resource. You can go far with it. That's where the disconnect is. Um, and that's what we need to start working towards um, reconciling. There could also be uh, a mistrust of certain things, of technology. Um, we are a largely cash-based um, nation, both in South Africa and continentally. Yes, the Ghanas and the Kenyans are fast adapters of, um, of tech and especially online payments and those sort of things. But, you know, we're still kind of getting there and we're still a very, um, I want to have money in my hand and exchange or I want this and that or we're using an e-wallet because we know how it works and we trust that. So th- those are the limiting factors that we have um, at Gaisi. But still, there's this beautiful, beautiful, raw, creative energy. And we see it everywhere, man, even through storytelling. If you log on to TikTok and you see in, South, in Africa, never mind in South Africa, the fast absorption of, of youth onto that platform. Apologies, I'm at a, a creative center for, for young people. And um, <laughs> it's just, it follows me wherever I go, you know, energy. And, um, but yeah, you know, so they're telling their stories, they're authentic and people are jumping onto that. We're seeing ourselves in these spaces. We're seeing, you know, what technology can do. I love that we're adapting it for creative executions in certain spaces. I wish that we would still get to that point where we're like, hey man, these are our stories. This is our thing. Like, let's be the ones that tell our own stories and support ourselves and support one another um, in that way. Because I think it's still in, a, in many senses, you know, the technology is up there and we're we're trying to get into that building and trying to get in there and trying to understand what terms, how to ask and this and that. And we need to understand that we are, we have the solutions. We are those people, you know, the township economy is worth billions. It's really interesting that you're saying that uh, because there is a parallel to the traditional film industry where the sort of like Hollywood type traditional film industry is also in, in all of our European countries. 
is very difficult to get into. Like you have to be really lucky and get a break and have the right connections and all of that. And at the same time, of course, we have this 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 media landscape now where there's a lot this this do it yourself storytelling energy and everybody is a storyteller and and there still seems to be a disconnect like people on the sort of traditional artistic slash commercial side of things are very curious about the energy from the do it yourself space but they are also kind of terrified of like how can we even interact with these people mm. like these people in this case being young people but it could be any group that is underrepresented mm. in this traditional context right uh, so I feel like there's also something to learn from from the way you are bridging these two environments i don't know if if uh, when you are people speaking to people investors for instance in these more traditional spaces or more established spaces how do you tell them to not be afraid sometimes i'm lucky enough to physically bring them into the township so they can see what the raw potential is so they can hear the stories of the 90 year old farmer gogos uh, a gogos old lady a granny you know these old grannies that are farming the vegetables that we eat, you know, and you got to meet these guys and go, okay, cool, we need to tell the story or we need to invest in this sort of entrepreneurship. I think there's also still this this gap where um, we've been so conditioned to think in a specific kind of way. I mean, and that, that speaks for everything. So, for example, if it's, I don't know, a film script and I'm seeing the brief just with words in black and white and it says there needs to be a beautiful woman smoking and a this and that and the other, already in my head at the concept of a beautiful woman, for some reason... I visualize it in a specific kind of way. Or it's a, uh, a beautiful blonde woman, for example. And that's, that is what my, my mind says. But also, that's what Google says when I'm going to now find reference images. You know what I mean? So these things have really been a part of our, a part of our thinking, whether we participate actively or not. And, and the real conversation is to confront those and to identify them. And it just makes the road a little bit easier. I really do also enjoy where um, some of these investor spaces... <laughs> have been crazy enough to go, look, you know, here you go. What will you do with a silly example? What would you do with $100? You know, okay, oh, we've got these eight people. They've got cool stories to tell. Like, we don't know if it's going to work or not, but if we each give them, you know, 12 rand, 50 or whatever it is, like, they can do this and that and just allowing those spaces to be. I think also um, the brands, the corporations, especially in somewhere as raw as our continent, there still needs to be that room for us to be able to create. So in a more Western or in a more um, first world um, nation, things, you know, access to cameras or access to like, to things. It's very, very easy. Here, you know, it's young people recycling old gear or using a cell phone and this and that. And those stories are still valid. We need to just pump a little bit more airtime in those spaces. But that's difficult to explain to those corporations because it's a matter of checks and balances and they want to invest in a company that's doing okay or that is guaranteed to win. And uh, the corporates can get in a little bit in the way of progression. Yeah, I mean, in our previous conversation, actually, in this episode about about identifying new talent and new pro- projects, there's we talked about this balance, like that these in institutions they need to minimize risk, also with when they're working with very large sums of money. Like it, it it makes sense in some of the structures and some of the hoops that they've built up that people need to jump, that can be so incredibly frustrating. They're there for a reason. We're not questioning that. Uh, but then not every threshold, not every hoop is there for a reason. And that brings us back to these internalized norms that that you were already referring to. I, I think that some of our listeners, especially people who are white like me, may, some of them may not even have come across this concept of decolonizing anything, for instance, tech. I know you look suitably shocked, I mean, as we should be. But I mean, there are some people who just in their daily life never have to think about the legacy of colonialism at all or how, how this affects uh, lives and, and economies around the world. Uh, now, 
obviously it's not your job to educate people. People just like go and educate yourself. This is still absolutely very much a thing. But even people who are very aware of these issues, they might have bought into this this narrative that technology is neutral. And I think that, that there's this idea that, you know, if you believe that the technology is neutral, then you believe the technology companies are neutral. And then you probably believe that algorithms are neutral and so on. Like, then it's, it's ludicrous, of course. And then I think, but then you might be surprised, oh, but what needs decolonizing? So if I say to you, what does decolonizing tech mean to you? Let's start there. <laughs> decolonizing tech would really be to invade the space um, and to take... So technology to me, I see it as a blueprint, as a formula, as an application that we can use to get to somewhere that we're going. And at the moment, it's been set in a specific kind of way, and we're all conforming to that, but technology can break so many different, the same tech can be applied in different ways. What it means to decolonize it is to keep, I'll say imposing, but I don't mean it like that, is to, but to really keep imposing ourselves, myself as in Bali, going into these um, what I'll call white spaces from a white brand to a this and that, the other, to a historically white, you know, if it's a company that started out in the States or in Europe or whatever it is, and now they're here. And you've got to come in there, you know, I speak white enough to get into the room, and then as soon as I'm in there, you must understand, I'm bringing everybody. <laughs> I'm sharing all the opportunities. I'm bringing all the darkest people ever to A, be aware of this, to understand why it's important, and to, and to empower themselves so that they can ripple that information back to where they're going. So it's a very continuous conversation. Sometimes it can be difficult. Um, so in a marketing, or even sometimes with the storytelling and film and music and entertainment, the senior bands are still are still a specific type of demographic, um, especially in terms of mindset. So if I'm pitching a story, for example, and it's a really cool African story, it's about this and that and the other, the person at the top of the chain who's reading my submission, perhaps they don't feel that they can connect with it. Um, and then they'll settle for a story that's, you know, something, ah, okay, I understand that, that's, oh, which also happens to be a white story. I understand that and this and that. Or the way that a different storyteller will um, package a black person or Indian person or this and that. And so there's so many things to be, to be aware of, really. And I think one of the key things is to, is to disrupt the, the top band and, and, to in, and really just to infiltrate. A, so you can see what a black person looks like. You know, and if in marketing, for example, there are some really, really offensive adverts, you know, and they've got a black lady, Umama, you know, and she's got a black accent. Now she's doing washing powder because in South Africa, as part of our history, it's domestic workers who are black and the education or whatever, whatever, which puts them into this category. That's offensive. You cannot be representing black people like that. Um, but the only way to do that is to be in those rooms with the decision makers and bring as black as you can so we can have an open conversation and, and to really open up the room. And then definitely, definitely, I think we need to figure out a way to allow black creatives or just African creatives, whatever you want to call it, just to be. I think the pressure for me as a young filmmaker or whatever it is, I have to chase money. Otherwise, this dream is not going to work. There's no room just to have like, you know, little hobby projects. Oh, here's a cool little animation I made for the gist of it because that's money you're losing. Or like, why is it not with a brand and I've got to go sell it wherever. And, you know, just, it's all those layers that we have to acknowledge and, and break through. So we were already talking sort of about three different things. Uh, one is about these norms again, like this, and the, I guess if 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 the first if this is the first time thinking about these things, I think a question people can ask themselves is like, who gets to be universal? Like, what stories, what people get to represent everybody? 
and who and then then the the opposite of that question of that like that who is then per definition sort of other and what just what happens what happens if we question those norms and then again like people don't have to know about centuries of history again i think they should but even if they don't they can sort of figure out what the historical reasons for these norms and these hierarchies are and there's just no reason for those to be perpetuated and in addition it's just like I mean, morally obviously it's wrong but it's also just terrible business mm. it's terrible business to shut out like the majority of the human population from one's ideals and, and worlds and, and world storytelling. So that's one part. And then this thing that you're saying about disrupting the top band is so interesting. Uh, it's both about, I guess, challenging these people in these senior positions, but also gradually we need to get more diversity in those senior positions as well. So, so that's a real question of like, how do we go about doing so that? I will give you the case study. Um, I just want to sidetrack quickly. Am I allowed to name names of companies? Well, I would not like to name Absolutely, yeah. Names. It's like a big news company. I mean, if it's, a, if it's a negative are. example, maybe don't. Yeah. <laughs> well, negative is a matter of perspective, right? Because some things, mm -hmm. if there's, so things are wrong, we need to speak about them as wrong things. And it's not that I'm yeah. telling you that you're a bad person. And that's something else that perhaps um, people in a privileged position might feel, is if we're speaking about, oh, racism is bad. Maybe they feel like it's a personal attack on their character and the things that they've done to get us here. And we're having an open conversation. We just need to be able to allow honesty. But there was a huge thing yeah. that came out a couple of days ago with this massive, massive national, international news broadcaster where 16 people of color employees have left. They have left. This is the news. This is the news. They cover African stories. They cover Middle East. They cover... America, the UK, Europe, they cover everywhere. You absolutely know who this company is. And, and they all had the same complaints. And that's, you know, that's the same publication where sometimes I will see an article online and I'm like, yeesh, that's a little, that's a little harsh or that's a little bit insensitive or you, you're insinuating something. And that's, you know, that's the media. That's where we're getting our information. And it's already coming with this, this rubbish undertone, this completely misguided, um, um, step, and then it turns out that well, the people of color in these rooms are just completely disregarded, and um, they don't even have like a twenty percent. The target for inclusion at that company is twenty percent. They're not even there, which astounded me. You know, mm. mm -hmm. so we need to really just um, have these open conversations and just why are these people leaving, and what is the common denominator at those kind of places that are just blocking, blocking the ability to even catalyze um, progress or catalyze conversations. Yeah, just think of everything that must have happened for them to get to a point where they leave. Like how many conversations have been had or not had, you know, to, leading up to that. And, and again, I mean, if you're in a senior position and you're like, oh, but we want to work with diversity and you're not even listening to the people who are already there, then you've got a real problem. I mean, yeah. I mean, a big thing that I also um, am passionate about is something that started a while back with another organization I work with called She Said So. And I was really interested in something that they were doing called hashtag inclusion before profit. And I don't know, what is all this about? And they said, well, Women's Day is coming up and, um, in South Africa, it's in August, you know, and this company is now suddenly booking all of these women, you know, so they can celebrate them on Women's Day. Pride Month is coming up as well. And suddenly we acknowledge the queers um, or the gays, whatever you want to call, you know, we, we acknowledge these people and now we want to stick a change our, our logo to have a rainbow flag. And, and, you know, it was a really, really awesome campaign where people of influence were, um, if you were a DJ, you'd say, look, if they are not 
60% women in my overall lineups, I'm actually not participating or people were withdrawing their things and, or like, you know, actually donate my funds to this uh, woman empowerment organization. And those are the little awesome. things that um, really go a long way. I lost my mind. I was just like, what are you doing? Inclusion before profits? Whoa, you know, like, and that's the way that we need to be going. And from there, I guess it, it catalyzed my need to, to further decolonize and to break down um, spaces and institutions and really just, even if it doesn't become successful, at least I've ruffled up a little feather. Like we've said our piece, we've shown the case study, the data is over there, like you have fun with that. And I think those things are also good. And also when you speak about decolonizing the internet and those sort of things, um, also it's been very seen in Hollywood where uh, actor, whoever, whoever will say, look, I'm not signing this contract until that uh, female or LGBT or whatever that person is, is on the same earning bracket as me or has the very same offering as what I have because we're all the same kind mm -hmm. of professionals and they, I recognize them actually above myself. So these mini activists that I, I consider them to be mini heroes who are effortlessly, it's very difficult to turn down many. Ha! It's very difficult to turn down many and I've done it myself. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts, especially if it's a big corporation. I recently also had to turn down, this I can speak openly about with Facebook, you know, having served as an ambassador for community leadership um, and uh, being an awarded icon for change by Facebook. And then, you know, hey, Bali, come jump on this campaign. And I'm going, mm, I don't know, man. I got seven dick pics the other day, like from random people. Like, I'm not as safe as a woman. I can't endorse this platform. And then saying goodbye to a lot of, to, to like opportunity and money and visibility. You know, who doesn't want to be celebrated by, by but what am I celebrating here? Because on, on the ground, the platform mm -hmm. itself is toxic. These, um, these, these things that we're trying to decolonize, you know, um, these, these boundaries that we're trying to break, they're being... They're being sustained on these internets. And so therefore, I cannot be a part of that. And um, yeah, yeah, I think it's, you're so right that this, that like in different ways, money is at the heart of it. Because as the sort of, in this case, the third aspect of, of decolonization, then it's both about, about some people who are getting money now who need to think about where that money comes from. Like, is this ethical or not? And can I turn it down or can I use my position to, to leverage change for somebody else? Uh, and then, as you were mentioning before, also that it's important to be able, um, if you're in for any reason outside sort of the mainstream currently, like to be able to to use your creativity and to use your creations to turn that into a sustainable career. And like obviously, like a culture, career in culture, like a, is difficult for in, like in many sectors, it's difficult mm. for everybody. If you choose to be a musician, it's difficult for everybody. But mm. we know from just like the intersectional analysis tells us that it's harder for some people. And it's really important that that we can see paths and make sure to like to even out those paths a little bit to to give a chance to people uh, who are working just as hard and who are just as talented often they have to be even more talented and work more uh, work even harder to to get to those places where the sustainable careers are and again we're in a structural situation i think where a lot of people who are working in culture would say well we we weren't able to change it for for whoever's in the system now. So mm. how can we change it for somebody else? And then maybe the answer is what we were talking about before. It's a different system then. Then maybe that's the economy is outside the old institutions. Yeah. Maybe that's where this is happening. Yeah. Do you want to tell I us some, some, some cases? Go right yeah. ahead. I want to jump on what you're saying because it's really, really important. Look, the way I see it, the change is inevitable. If you look at whatever international accolade awards from your Golden Globes, you this and that, already as it is over the years, before COVID, they'd been seeing a dramatic decline 
in viewership, in acknowledgements, you know, with even, I think Drake and them didn't even submit their music to the more recent, um, to the Grammys, because they're just like, ah, we're tired of participating in white spaces, um, or we're tired of participating in these things and begging for scraps, you know, there's only space for one, for the one token, or like, you know, we've got Maya Angelou, we've got our black, we've got our black goddess, we've, we've done our thing for progress, you know, here's the one trans person, like, please get off our backs, because we really don't want to change. But what we're seeing as well, especially which I love, which is like your Gen Z's, Number one, they're very vocal about things and they just do not see, you know, some of us are still conditioned to kind of identify diversity. Diversity is something that the younger generation embrace. In fact, they go, they just go out of their way to express, you know, these things and so freely and so this and that. And that's also what tech and social media has allowed, has allowed for. I mean, young people are even using it to, for activism, which we'll unpack another time. But ah, yeah, that's, I've got so much that I can say on this. <laughs> but yeah, the change is, is inevitable. The change is inevitable. You're either going to be a part of it or you're going to sit there and, and dwindle out like a Kodak or a Blockbuster because you're so stuck on those old ideals. So do, could you tell us some examples of, of how, how technology is contributing to, to change? So some case studies or some, something that inspires you from, from people you're working with or, or, or stuff you're seeing? I saw something really interesting about three years ago. It was on TikTok. And it was a series of very young, very energetic young people who would start off by doing a makeup tutorial. Hey guys, you're on my channel. Blah, blah, blah. So here's how you do your contouring and something about eyeliner. And then like 20 seconds in, they're like, oh yeah, by the way, there's this crazy thing going on where this government is oppressing those people. This is why it's important. Here's how you can sign up. Blah, 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 blah. And this, I mean, it was a trend where young people were taking this technology, pretending to be cute so that everyone can scroll away. And then once, you know, once the old people are gone, let's have a chat and let's get this thing going. And that is, that is raw, organic, <laughs> real energy. Come on, you know, that is, that is really beautiful stuff. And they, I mean, they're just, I mean, there's many cases of, of the Gen Z's and the things that they've done to disrupt, um, to disrupt, disrupt, disrupt. The only thing we can do right now is to disrupt because what I love about disruption is that it just, no one sees it coming and you're sitting there and now you have, ah, what do I need to do, you know, and it kind of, it catalyzes um, change. So that's one of my favorite case studies. Um, other ones are really um, in terms of storytelling and, and filmmakers and actors where it's just a best thing as basic as a cell phone and they've been creating their own sketch comedy. I mean, it's something that they don't even have to have heavy production sets, you know. If you just switch your cap forward and you shoot this side, then you switch your cap backwards and you shoot that side. That's two different characters and that's a story. Come on, you know. Um, just using really, really simple things and just being organic and real and just putting it out there and everyone's connecting with that. Those are my favorite. Um, those are my favorite case studies. Yeah. Mm. So when we're thinking specifically about film, t TV, streaming, video-based, social media, all of this, this whole like field, on the one hand, on-screen diversity is growing. B behind the camera, diversity is growing not as fast, but at least something. We're seeing some results, and stories and voices from more countries around the world are traveling better. That's something that we know. For like, that's a real trend. People are mm. much more open to, to hearing stories in different languages and from different paths. And as you're saying, I think especially young people go looking for that. Like they're they're for them, it's just a basic demand mm. uh, to have more diversity. But on the other hand, we know that 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 certain countries, and in particular the United States, are still so dominant, ex such dominant exporters of culture uh, in in many markets. So, what are your thoughts about decolonizing film storytelling? Like, have we gotten anywhere, or like, are we very early on, or have we gotten somewhere? And what's next? It's a bit of both. In one, in one sense, we're making strides towards the positive. Really awesome platforms such as this one where we are actually having conversations and taking home notes that we can 
um, that we can apply or that we can really just have in mind when we're taking more actions. At the same time, there's still this old school way of thinking where it's acquire, acquire, acquire. If you look in South Africa, well, in all developing nations or third world, where let's say, for example, it's an international music record label, music and entertainment, you know, to the scale of like a Warner Universal, whatever it is, you know, those big guys. Locally, we have um, record labels are dying. They're a dying breed. You know, their relevance is, is, is gone. We can all create our music ourselves, license it, be independent, and that's great. But it doesn't stop these guys because they are bottom line chasers. They're a corporation creative corporation, but a corporation nonetheless, and American bottom line chasing and all of that. So what happens here is that I, as a major label, will now go and find you and your independent label, and I'll just buy you. I'll say, no, you carry on, but now I'll earn you. So we're still being colonized. Our, our, you know, we're fighting a different kind of colonization, and all is money-based at the end of the day, and I don't know how to unpack that, and I don't know what's, um, what more needs to be done. We just need to keep moving. But but that's something that we need to be aware of, you know, even, for example, something as silly as TikTok or whatever it is and, you know, Twitter, whatever these social, Facebook, Instagram. Yes, cool, you know, but we're giving our, our identity, we're selling it off to another company that's making, no exaggeration, billions, billions. And you're getting like, okay, cool, it helps your brand, you get your visibility and this and that. But that's the space where we really need to start figuring out how to, how to uh, really thinking about that gap and how to bring it together. It's so interesting because the creatives all around the world are facing this sort of power struggle, of course, with these global corporations now. And I think also filmmakers in Europe are are in a situation where because of the structural changes, a lot of them are saying, oh, wait, whoa, whoa, like we have a lot of work, but our IP is becoming now, now it's, we don't own anything anymore. It's all owned, owned by a lot of these big American corporations. Or hang on, like I used to be somebody who's creating something for me, like historically that's been possible in Europe. Wait a minute, like I'm selling my time now. How did that happen? I don't know. I mean, I hope it, and, and, and you know, they're shocked. You know, we're shocked because the, historically we haven't been in this position. You're probably like laughing like, oh, first time, you know. <laughs> but but I, I think, I hope at least it, there can be some solidarity that comes out of this, you know, with people who are also being exploited and have yeah. been historically exploiting, saying it doesn't feel great when people come and steal your stuff. Now, does it? Even if you get paid a little bit. Yeah. So the struggle, you know, one of the, the, the notable things about, you know, COVID and the world shutting down and everybody being in that same boat um, is that it got a lot of people having to review certain things, things that used to come easily because I'm Bali and I'm this kind of person. There's a bit of a challenge there and, you know, relief funds and all of that, while some of them are a little bit politicized, you know, oh, you're helping this artist and not the other or whatever it is. That's a different conversation. So the thing is that... Creatives are creatives, and no matter what it is, we are all one big happy family. And as soon as, you know what I mean? How are you going to argue? How are you going to clash with your own siblings when you're living in the same house? You feel what I'm saying? And um, I also, I try, I try to disrupt that by creating communities as well. So young filmmakers or this and that and the other, or just having everybody in the same room from your senior guys to a couple of rookies so we can all, you know, have those open conversations and keep those dialogues fluid. But it's still a long way to go. And I really... I think while, while the pandemic and all of that has really broken a lot of us down, I think it also just, we all come from that same place of a shared pain, of shared loss, of just, you know, what do we do now and how do we come together? And it's been really, really cool to see. Um, there's a, a lady I met the other day, you know, she was here from, from Germany, actually. She was here in South Africa and then the pandemic happened and she left and then she came back and 
all she's doing is going into the hood to understand X, Y, and Z, you know, her content. And she's going out of her way to, to get involved uh, in, the, in the township to, um, to connect with, um, she's more in the music space, to connect with musicians and go, okay, cool, you need to meet that person. Or like, here, here are links where you can this and that and the other, you know, workshopping. We still need that, like, interpersonal um, connecting of the dots. And those are random people who are helping to connect the dots. The actors, like I mentioned, who said, no, 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 fix this contract for those people. We need a lot more people just to connect those dots because it's a small thing, you know, um, and it really does go a long way. I love that because it's such practical advice, like the, that these are big structural issues. It's massive, like we need to do a lot of self-reflection and, and, and a lot of people need to educate themselves about why certain structures look the way they do. Um, but at the same time, part a big part of the solution is just getting people in a room. And I know for climate reasons, we're hoping to take a lot of unnecessary travel out. But I, I think that in the category of necessary travel, we still need to have getting people from, from different backgrounds to work together. And as you're saying, it could be established, unestablished within a country or a sector, or it could be people from just different countries working together. Because when you're making creative projects together, uh, or, or even you're working on solving a problem together, that all of those categories disappear of course then you have individuals and then it's a whole different conversation absolutely absolutely look it's you know um how do you eat an elephant it's one bite at a time this elephant is huge and you've just got to take a little step and and we shouldn't pressure ourselves as well to feel like we have to be the superheroes we've just got to kind of be realistic within ourselves um and take a break if you feel like there's nothing i can do okay cool maybe i should you know pick up a book or, you know, find a podcast or, you know, re-listen to this conversation um, and just really kind of get yourself going. So when I feel uncomfortable about something, when there's something that I need to learn or unlearn, man, I will go through an emotional roller coaster. Ah, oh, but it's this and that, here are my opinions and I'm stuck on them. And then when I calm down and I just absorb a little bit more information and I have a few conversations or I'll sit on a YouTube or whatever it is and, you know, stories from the hood or, you know, stories from wherever and, and understand that because then you're connecting with people. Um, and yes, we must still have these physical engagements or put people into the same room. And that's also why I really enjoy um, being a, a community creator, whether it's Facebook groups or WhatsApp groups or these online spaces because people will just speak and, um, and it's there that those conversations also happen because most of the time I've roped in like senior marketing strategists, you know, who's used to being praised for the great work they're doing. And here's everyone going, listen, this is gross. This is unfair. This is whoa, whoa, whoa. like this is what the problem is with you guys. And people just need to listen. <laughs> yeah, that's actually really good as well. That's not just having this like like sunshine stories of, oh, we're creating this project together. It's also just creating spaces where you can say, oh, you suck, you know. <laughs> That's important too, but it's it's a big ask for 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 you know for any human being I guess to to expose yourself to saying okay what can I learn, like how did I fail, I don't know. I just want to ask you. So what have I forgotten to ask about? What should I what should I have? What have I failed to ask about? So we'll get that question in as well. I'm going to get home and be like, oh, I should have spoken about this. Or, oh, I should have done that. So I cannot, I cannot tell you right now. <laughs> okay, Ooh, that's a relief at least. Yeah. Thank you ever so much, Mbali and Lovo, for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited again. And thank you so much for the opportunity just to highlight and to have a, just a really awesome conversation. I did want to jump and say, you know, I think brands and companies and the big guys, they want to be seen as the good guys. But I mean, even Beyonce has a bad day. You know what I mean? Like we all, we're humans at the end of the day. And just allowing that room, which is also why I commend you. This is a brave conversation, you know, where you're going, oh, there's a risk of 
uncomfortable things or confrontational things that can come in this conversation, but it's okay because I hold space for this conversation to just to have itself. And if we could just be a little bit more mindful and just more, no one cares, man. No one cares. And when you're trying to be this perfect person, it shows that you're denying so many things. And the time is now. Um, whether or not you participate, the change is happening. That is all from us for today. I hope our guests have helped you reframe some old way of thinking about how we organize our work and resources in this industry and the role technology can play in making it all more equitable. Industry Insights is produced by the Berlinale's European Film Market in cooperation with Goethe Institute and co-funded by Creative Europe Media. And if you like what you hear, do share an episode with a friend or give us a review on your podcasting platform. It really does help. We'll be back in your feed in no time. <laughs>